Hello and welcome to episode 257 of the Thinking LSAT podcast uh, in my parents' guest bedroom in Ripon, California. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia, Ben Olson. You're back from the beach, Ben. Yeah. Awesome. Today on the show, uh, we have an interview we already recorded with Aaron Taylor of Access Lex. I'm excited for everybody to hear this interview, Ben. Mm-hmm. I think that that was awesome. I think Aaron is going to be a big hit talking about what we can do to fix law schools in lots of different ways. <laughs> We're also going to talk about news. I guess we'll lead with uh, this news from uh, the July LSAT Flex, mm-hmm. where LSAC just lost some of the scores. Um I really want to know what percentage. (laughs) (laughs) They say it's a very small percentage. uh, But uh, as we know from LSAT studies, small percentage or even very small percentage is uh, an inherently subjective term. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have no idea what that might mean. They also, they, by the way, side note, they referred to 25 people at one point in one of their emails. Uh, Maybe we'll get to that today, but, uh, at first, I was like, "Oh, only twenty-five people lost," and then I I reread the sentence, and it was like twenty-five people of a certain group, and it was like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> right." <laughs> so it 20... could be a lot larger. <laughs> well, th- yeah, they're talking about twenty-five who are applying this. Oh yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah, which yeah, no was... <laughs> one should be doing. That should be <laughs> no a microscopic percentage of the people who are taking the July test. So they lost twenty five of the scores of the people who are applying this fall oh, right now, gosh. which like is yeah. crazy. I mean, imagine that stress. But that's probably the best thing that ever happened to those people. By the way, like if you're mm-hmm. trying to get a score right now to go to in July to go to law school in September, you are doing it wrong. So yeah, stop. <laughs> like they did you a favor, maybe. Anyway, yeah. we'll get to that. We also have a report from a student who went from a 152 to a 177 on their LSAT. Ben, I yesterday I was getting inundated by those kinds of messages. I know mm-hmm. you were too. We were trading mm-hmm. a lot of emails yesterday. I, I heard some people crash and burn on the July LSAT, but I also heard a lot of people who kicked ass on the July LSAT. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. It almost made me feel weird. Like it made me feel like they made it easier or something. I I, <laughs> I can't believe how many huge increases we've heard. Yeah, a couple of things are going on here though, right? Like first of all, the demon has become the only method in which people prepare now. We've also <laughs> added I mean, for us, right? The, the people yes. that, yeah, that that interact with us. Yeah. So we have the demon and we have classes Every day of the week and yeah. a variety of classes, targeted classes right before we would teach a class and it'd be like, hey, everybody come. We're going to talk to you for a few hours and then you're out of here. Oh, yeah. People would go away for two weeks yeah, and come back having done nothing in the meantime for my classes mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. lots of cases. But now everybody's working every day. Every day, live classes, targeted classes on whatever you want to focus on. Yeah. I, I wonder how much of that's helping, too, because we have based it somewhat on science and what we have felt seems to work. And then you add in the flex, which is now what a three-section test online at home. So people aren't running to some building. People feel more comfortable maybe. Yeah, but it's like training for a marathon. And then they said, okay, well, we'll do a pretty much a half marathon. Yeah, 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 could be. All right, we'll get to that. Um, this show is going to air on Monday, August 3rd. 
uh, upcoming dates that you might need to put on your calendar. We have the uh, August 21st deadline to sign up for the uh, October LSAT. I still just can't believe how goddamn far in advance you have to register for the LSAT. It just makes no sense, Ben. Why? For what? For what Especially now, right? There's no. Well, you have to sign up for it, and then you also have to sign up for a Proctor U window later. Why don't they just make it continuous, and you can just sign up for a Proctor U administered test whenever? What the? You know, I'm just sick of. I'm sick of it. Like you have to sign up so far in advance. You have to also wait three weeks for your scores, and then LSAC just loses your scores. It's like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? I signed up for this test three months ago, and now you're telling me on the score release date. Oh, we don't have your score. Sorry. Anyway, um, you know someone was shit in the bed for like <laughs> the last two and a half weeks, or actually the last three weeks, right? They they found out the day of, and they're like, uh, "President Testy, well, we thing. don't have their scores." <laughs> Why does it take three weeks to get your scores? And LSAC didn't know they had lost your scores until the score release date. I have what? no idea. Anyway, we'll get to it. Um, yeah. So Friday. August 21st, that is the deadline to sign up for the October LSAT. So if you're hearing this now and you want to take the test this fall, you need to go onto the LSAC website and pay them 200 bucks so you can sign up for this awesome experience That's that you're about to have. That's earlier than usual, right? Usually <laughs> it it's like earlier. a month out. Yeah. It feels earlier, but I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, Saturday, August 29th is the beginning of the August LSAT flex testing week. That only is relevant to you if you're already signed up for the test. (laughs) So so sign up a full eight days before even the test for in August. I, God, you can email the show. If you would like to complain about these or other issues, you can email the show at thinkinglsat.com. Oh, complain about us by all means. So we definitely deserve it. Um, when you email us, there's a chance that your picture might get used on our social media if, if you would like. So a picture of you and your pet armadillo studying for the LSAT, uh, go ahead and send, send that in to us. Leave us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. It really does help people find the show. So I know you get begged to do that all the time, but we're going to continue to beg you to do that <laughs> because it's the only way people are going to find us. Okay, you ready to get into this? update regarding the july lsat flex scores sure this is an email from our friend eric he really is a nice guy by the way eric uh at lsac uh, sends this email out to all test prep uh providers i believe him to be a genuine good guy unfortunately the (laughs) lsac just keeps fucking up but anyway here's here's a sort of mea culpa from eric i'll let you read it then Sure. So it says, Dear Ben, as you are probably aware, we recently identified a technical issue for a small number of candidates who took the July test. Okay, small number, vague, right? But whatever. (laughs) This issue affected how their answers were transmitted into our system, which caused their answers not to store properly. (laughs) (laughs) The subject of the sentence is this issue. Right. Yeah. It's not we <laughs> lost their scores. It's yeah. there was an issue that affected how their answers were transmitted into the system, <laughs> which caused their answers not to store properly, as if the answers themselves 
like a magnetic, like a magnet that was turned the wrong direction. The, the answers were like, <laughs> no, we don't want to go in there. Anyway. <laughs> it's all very passive. This is just like the, you know, the universe. Okay. Yeah. We discovered the issue. We didn't cause it. We just came across this issue during our scoring process. <laughs> we discovered the issue during our scoring process. So <laughs> the, the answers wanted to, there was an issue, you see, and the issue caused a problem where the answers didn't want to store themselves in the system. But LSAC, what they did was they discovered the issue. They discovered the problem. You see, they're like sleuths <laughs> when in. It's awesome. When the solution starts taking place, all of a sudden the subject of the <laughs> sentence becomes them again. Yeah. Um, okay. It's amazing. It's good, actually. I mean, that's like, that's probably the right decision for them to make <laughs> to phrase yep. it all this way. <laughs> yeah, we have tried multiple ways to recover the answers and are continuing to investigate the issue, the issue, in hopes that we can recover scores for at least some of the affected candidates. You know, if we hadn't interviewed um, Aaron today, the title of this episode would have had to been The Issue. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyways, it continues. This issue did not occur in the May and June test. We have made changes in our online testing platform to make sure this does not happen in the future. We deeply regret that this happened and are contacting all affected test takers to provide them with options. In particular, we are moving quickly to recreate a free retake opportunity as early as next week, week of August 3rd, for any affected test taker with scores available within a week or less. We are also, oh, so you can calculate scores within a week. That's nice to know. We are also providing a full refund for their July LSAT Flex registration fee and four free law school reports. Again, we're providing coupons for things that already don't cost us very much, if anything. For any candidate who wishes to take the free test retake, retest later, they can do so through this testing cycle, which ends April 2021. It appears that about 25 of the affected test takers had applied for admission this fall, and so we will work with them and the schools to which they have applied to ensure the schools are aware of this situation and will provide as much flexibility as possible, given that the circumstances are not in any way the fault of the candidate, no shit. period. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. I don't think you needed to include that part. Because no, we, we know clear that, that you... <laughs> The issue took place because of you. Um, anyways, we appreciate your concern and support for candidates, semicolon. As you know, we do not rest until we take... I can't, I'm sorry. What? As you know, we do not rest until we take care of every one of them. Yeah, I didn't appreciate that part, honestly. <clears throat> that, that part, Eric was getting inside my head in a way that I was like, dude, I don't have that opinion. I'm sorry. But yeah. I, I, I do not know that, Eric. I, I mean, I, I, again, I, I think Eric himself personally really wants to do everything right. He seems genuine to me. But um, <laughs> the behemoth organization, on the other hand, has made some decisions <laughs> that do not lead me to that conclusion. It's also an organization that generally takes itself very literally, right? So for Eric to point out that we do not rest until we take care of every one of them, it's just not true. 
you have to go to bed if you want to help them. You got to be rested. <laughs> Anyways, so, thanks, Eric. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe we should read this next one. Uh, well, okay. So now we have back and forth between an actual affected student. Yep. We, mm-hmm. Which we started getting. I started getting rumors of this from students before LSAC actually, you know, got out out there with the with the email to the test prep uh, community. But uh, so the first email that you got here was, uh, mm-hmm. "Hey Ben, this was on the 29th, by the way. So uh, Wednesday, hey." Benton, I took your live DC class for the March LSAT. I ended up taking the June Flex and got a 165. My PTs were higher, 168 to 170. So I took the July Flex. As the subject alludes to, LSAC lost my July Flex. I felt confident on how I performed and thought I did well. Consequently, I decided that that was going to be my last test. I also started a full-time job. I haven't studied since the week leading into the July test, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on potentially retaking in August. This, given I haven't studied at all since the beginning of July and won't have much time to study in the future. I don't want to risk my score going down, obviously, which is why I'm hesitant to retake. Looking forward to hearing from you. Best, Nick. Now, I don't think my email is here, but just for anyone who's curious, I told Nick that they all set the skill-based test, so... Once he starts studying just a little bit, it should come back pretty quickly. It's not that hard to get back on the horse. Mm-hmm. Still, circumstances, he's got a job now. Yeah, you're done. He wanted to check this thing off of his list. The fact that they make people sign up so goddamn far in advance, and the fact that they take three weeks to get the scores out, how the hell, Ben, do they not have some sort of a validation to just check to make sure they have everybody's responses. Why did it take three weeks after the test for them to realize that they had lost Nick's score? That part is confusing to me. What? Uh, we've had this problem in the Demon in the past, and we now have a little bot that like checks. So you can know instantly whether there are problems. And um, we're a tiny little... <laughs> nothing compared to the law school admission council, but we administer tests all the time online and don't lose people's scores. And we've only existed for like a year. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> email number two. Hi all. I'm still waiting for an email from LSAC. I know because they called me yesterday afternoon to tell me there was a technological error and that they lost my score. The lady I spoke with said that I would receive an email last night. Nothing yet. Still no score. Here's essentially the story. I checked Tuesday night on my LSAC account where the score would be and noticed a special note under the July flex that said, quote, score validity review. This was the first (laughs) time this popped up, and it was only about a day that it had been on there before I noticed it. I called LSAC on Wednesday morning and spoke with a representative who told me that he, quote, didn't know what that meant and that, quote, my score was still scheduled to be released on time and that, quote, everything seemed okay with my test. I wasn't satisfied with that answer, so I called again around lunchtime and spoke to someone else. She also did not know what that meant, but told me she would have someone call me back with more information. A couple hours later, someone from LSAC did call me back, and I spoke with a rep who confirmed my score was lost. To make up for this, she slash LSAC offered a full refund for the July 4 test, or for the July test, four free score reports, 
and then either a spot in the August test or a coupon for a future test. As I said, she said I would receive an email from LSAC later in the evening last night, but instead we all received emails about LSAC's diversity events. As I'm sending this, I'm still waiting for an email from LSAC, and I will forward you whatever they send, if they send it. I do plan on calling them again in a bit to confirm that I want to register for the August Flex. However, it would be nice if they offered a score preview, but that is wishful thinking. Everybody's just like asking for... You know, score preview is a new thing that LSAC created. It's only for first-time test takers. You can pay extra to see your score before deciding whether you want to cancel. That does seem like a pretty good freebie to give somebody like Nick, who got totally screwed. Nick <laughs> Nick retook the test because he thought he could do better. He feels like he did do better. And then three weeks later, they tell him, we lost your score. Yeah, I'm surprised. He wrote, I said, I wrote him back and I said, hey, Nick, just ask for it. And he said, I already did ask for it. And they said, no. So I don't understand. I don't understand why they're giving a full refund on the test. They're giving four free whatever reports. This is just another free service. It doesn't cost them anything. Just offer it to them. But it's substantively very helpful. So then we do get uh, the email from LSAC. <clears throat> says, hi, in addition to reaching out by phone, I want to ensure you have information regarding your July LSAT Flex score in email. In the course of our scoring process, we recently identified a technical issue affecting how your answers were transmitted into our system, which caused your answers not to store properly. Therefore, we are unable to provide you with a score at this time. We have tried multiple ways to recover your answers and will continue to investigate the issue in hopes of better news, but unfortunately, we cannot guarantee we will be able to provide a score for your July test. We apologize to you and other affected test takers. We know how frustrating this is and are very sorry this happened. We are working quickly to provide you with a free retake opportunity as early as next week uh, with scores available within a week or less. So now they've you know they added a new thing. Like they had first said, we'll let you have a spot in the August flex. Mm-hmm. But now they're also saying, oh, actually, we'll let you take it earlier than that. We're going to make a special retake opportunity where the scores will come out on a reasonable time frame. They haven't actually done that yet. You know, Eric's email was like, as early as August, as early as the week of August 3rd, which, by the way, means no sooner than the week of August 3rd. <laughs> <laughs> which is only a few days from now, but it's still funny with yeah. the KG lawyer language. <laughs> um, providing a full refund of your July LSAT flex registration fee and four free law school reports, which cost $45, even though all it is is an email to the schools with your score. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason why it should cost anything. Mm-hmm. Should you prefer to take the free retest later, you can do so through the testing cycle ending April 21st. Please contact us immediately, blah, blah, blah. Sincerely, Candidate Services Law School Admission Council. Okay. What do you think? I don't know. I wish they would provide score preview. I mean, this stuff does happen. Sure. But, um, yeah, the way they're... I, I, I think overall they seem to be responding proactively um, they're deflecting a little bit, obviously not taking full responsibility, but substantively they are trying to solve these problems and refund people. I just wish they would give them score preview. I don't understand why yeah, they don't do that. That would be a nice compensation. Also, this, none of these issues would be nearly as big of a deal if they would shorten <clears throat> the amount of time in advance that you have to register mm-hmm. 
and if they would shorten the amount of time it takes to get your damn score back. I mean, I can't stop saying this. When you take the GMAT, you get your score instantly, mm-hmm. literally in an instant. <laughs> it mm-hmm. says, do you want to see your score? You click yes, and it shows you your score. Mm-hmm. So if GMAT can do that, then why the fuck can't the LSAT do that? Mm-hmm. Give me, I mean, I mean, or at least give me a reason why it makes no sense. Yep. I mean, because they didn't make the test computer adaptive and because they, you know, made a bunch of choices, but still like fix it, just fix it. You could just give the score right away. There's no reason why you're not doing that already. Mm-hmm. And, and if you did that, if it was the kind of thing where you could register and take the test a week from now yep, and then see your score instantly, then these issues would not be a big deal. But they're they a huge away, deal yeah. when, it, when the whole thing takes two months, no, more mm-hmm. than two months, Ben. It takes six weeks to register plus three mm-hmm. weeks to get your score. So it's, you know, that the minimum is 10 or sorry, the minimum is nine weeks. That's if you register on the deadline. <laughs> it's going to be nine weeks till you get your score. Yeah. That's why these things end up being so fucking dramatic. Yeah. And if you miss that by that deadline by a week or anything like that, you're you're looking at the next cycle. So now you're looking at two more months on top of that. It's it's like they could save themselves all kinds of hassles. I, I'm sure that this would benefit LSAC so much to just you got to change that system. It just makes no sense. The reason why you're having constant phone calls and emails from hysterical students, because I'm sure they also get phone calls and emails from hysterical students who are like, wait. It's the middle of July. What do you mean I missed the registration for the LSAT that's in late August or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. well, yeah, you missed the deadline because the deadline's six goddamn weeks before the test. <laughs> and so they, I'm sure then they call LSAC and cry and complain and try to get special treatment. And like, okay, well, fix, I don't know, get your shit together. Okay. You want to take this next one? Sure. Yep. Hi, Ben. I hope you're doing well. I wanted to let you know I received my July Flex score today. Okay, so this was a successful <laughs> saving. Uh, 177! Exclamation point. A 25-point increase from my diagnostic. I'm flipping out. Three exclamation points. Wow, yeah. Okay, we see that in your writing. Anyway, thank you so much for your help. It was a long road. But strategy prep, the demon, and the podcast... Got me there in the end. Special shout out to Nathan for showing up in my brain during the test. Quote, make the argument win. Okay, I'll wrap up. Please feel free to read this on the podcast if you'd like. And thank you again. I might follow up with a personal statement to shred, but I haven't decided if my skin is thick (laughs) enough. Smiley emoji. Sarah. Yes, Sarah, I hope we convinced you to send it in. We're looking forward to... Well, you could look at it as we're shredding it, but if it needed to be shredded, then it's better to get it shredded than... Yeah. Also, your skin will only get thicker. Mm -hmm. We're only trying to help. So yeah, we'll rip it up, but it'll get better. So do it. There you go. Yeah. Um, 25 point increase from the diagnostic, Ben. Yeah, that's awesome. I've heard people be devastated about starting with a 152. People are so embarrassed to admit. You get them on the phone, you know, first time you talk to them, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, I took a diet. Yeah, I did take a diagnostic, but it was, oh, it was bad. I just, I, I can't, I can't, no, it was really, really low. <laughs> and then you finally get it out of them. You know, they finally spit it out, 152. And I'm always mm-hmm. just like, oh, 
Nice. <laughs> we can work with that. Yeah. Low 150s, high 140s, even mid 140s, even low 140. I'm not like terrified of a 142. Mm-mm. 152 is awesome. And this, yeah. Sarah went from 152 to a 177, 99.9th percentile score Sarah ended up with yeah. uh, after starting with a 152. Mm-hmm. She, I just realized she kicked my ass by two points. I started with a 153 <laughs> and I ended up with a 176. She started one point below me and went one point above me. All right. Well, so. you did not have the benefit of studying with the LSAT team in pen. So, oh, this is true. She had an unfair this is true. advantage. Yeah. This is like <laughs> those old running times, right? That were based on like shoes that didn't have the spikes in them or something. There you go. All right. Um, lots of big increases we heard this cycle, especially because of the demon. But, um, you know, we can just let the students speak for themselves. We don't need to pat ourselves on the back, on our, on our back any more than we already do. This interview is awesome, Ben. I think it's time to probably play it. It's about 50 minutes. Do you want to sum up at all what we talked about on the show, on the interview with Aaron? Bottom line, there are problems with the law school ranking system and people need to know what they're getting into before they go to law school? I don't know. Yeah, you will hear uh, me at a complete loss for words multiple times during the episode (laughs) or during the interview Mm -hmm. (laughs) where I'm just completely stuck Mm -hmm. and can't speak because I'm so devastated by the system. (laughs) Aaron is genuinely doing his best to try to work to fix the system Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, uh, it's a, it's a little dark. Anyway, Aaron's a great guy and I think you guys will enjoy the interview. So here's our interview with Aaron Taylor of Access Lex. With us today, we have Aaron Taylor. Aaron is the executive director for the Access Lex Center for Legal Education Excellence in Washington, D.C. He was previously a member of the law school faculty at St. Louis University School of Law, Dean of Admissions and Scholarships at University of Arkansas School of Law, and admissions director for Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Prior to that, he practiced ethics law in Washington, D.C. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from North Carolina A&T State University, a JD from Howard University, and a doctorate in higher education leadership and policy from Vanderbilt University. He's also an alumnus of the Harvard University Administrative Fellowship Program. Wow, Aaron, that's a lot. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Where are you, Aaron? You're Thank in you. D.C.? Yeah, well, Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Yeah, D.C. Metro. All right. Ben has some clue where that is. I don't. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> A little bit Great north, community. east maybe of where I am, I think. so. Yeah, um, exactly. Cool. So, Aaron, um, can uh, you reached out to us. Um, can you tell us a, a bit about your role at Access Lex and why you took that position? And I guess if you wanted to start with anything else, you're more than welcome to. Yeah. Well, um, I, as you mentioned, I lead the Center for Legal Education Excellence with Access Lex. And in the center, what we do is we conduct rigorous, actionable research into legal education. And we mainly focus in the areas of the bar exam and student diversity. And I emphasize actionable um, because we don't conduct research just because it's interesting to do. Uh, we conduct research with a goal and a purpose of informing policies, practices, procedures, uh, the things that law schools actually do that impact law students. And then we also fund research of other people through our grant programs 
and and we engage in policy advocacy as well uh, around issues that are relevant to law students, including, of course, student loan policy. So there's a whole lot we do in the center, but it is really focused on uh, adding to the knowledge base of legal education, what it does, what it doesn't do, how it serves the students, and then using that information to actually impact the lives of students through the policies and practices of law schools. I guess I'm just curious, um, how have things changed over the past six months? <laughs> a whole lot has changed, right, with yeah. the bar exam. Um, though, though, of course, much of that is driven um, by conditions and factors that are well outside of our control, uh, namely uh, the uh, COVID crisis um, and, and even the uh, Black Lives Matter movement that has been re-energized. Um, in a lot of ways. And so what we've tried to do is be a resource to law schools as well as to uh, state bar associations um, in the form of just providing good information about what could work, um, also, also advocating for test takers. You know, our position generally is the way that states should handle this and it's not an easy situation to be in. So I don't, I don't cast aspersions on anybody or anything that's having to deal with this situation, but their focus should be on what's best for the test takers. And that's their health and wellness, as well as uh, uh, giving them the opportunity to begin their career as lawyers as soon as they can. I mean, that's the whole premise of them going to law school, the vast majority of them. And so that's basically what we've been doing, but much of it is just us sitting back with everybody else, really just in awe (laughs) of how different things have transpired. And I mean, you know, what my hope is that this will prompt us to really consider some alternative uh, avenues into the profession that don't necessarily flow through the traditional bar exam. So I've been hearing on other podcasts, um, the Above the Law podcast had had an episode recently about diploma privilege. Do you have a position yeah. on that? Well, you know, it, it's, it's a real option um, and it's something that should be seriously considered by every jurisdiction. Uh, we've had diploma privilege in, in Wisconsin for over 100 years, at least for graduates who graduate from Wisconsin law school. Wait, wait sorry. And I, it, I don't mean to interrupt, uh-huh. but uh, sorry, what, what's diploma privilege? What, what is this? Yeah. So, so essentially, it's if you graduate from law school and get your diploma, uh, you're admitted to the bar subject to, of course, the character and fitness background check. Uh, that every person being uh, considered for bar admission has to go through. But there is no separate exam that you take post-law school. Your diploma from law school is your entry into the profession, essentially. And this would happen, so certain schools have opted into this, and it's for that state only, I'm assuming. Right. So Wisconsin is the only state uh, pre-COVID crisis that had diploma privilege. And it's essentially, if you graduate from University of Wisconsin Law School or Marquette Law School, you get admission to the Wisconsin Bar. If you came from another law school, you had to take the Wisconsin Bar exam. Um, but now post-COVID, with all the issues with you know the risk of having an in-person bar exam, uh, you've had a few states, Utah, uh, Washington, um, uh, there's another I'm forgetting, who have basically adopted emergency diploma diploma privilege for basically this class only. It's not a policy that's intended to be permanent, but it's really just uh, something that's being done given the unprecedented and chaotic nature of, of, of this crisis. Got it. So basically only one state and two law schools allowed this before, and now 
some states have already started to allow it. A few, and maybe right, some people yeah. are pushing for more. I mean, I feel like we're kind of digging into the weeds here of, of like uh, the bar exam and, you know, ways for people to get into the profession. But can we step back for a second, Aaron, and just talk about like what's your what's the big goal? What's what's your number one mm-hmm. goal as an organization and as you as an individual within that organization? Yeah. So, you know, we exist to make legal education better for law students. I mean, that's that's our fundamental bottom line on that. And by better, we mean more efficient, more effective, more equitable. Uh, We have a strategic plan that's aligned around four broad objectives. Uh, One is to increase bar pass rates. We want every law school in the country uh, to have a bar pass rate, first time bar pass rate of at least 70 percent. And right now, you'll probably have about 40, 45 schools that will fall under that uh, in any given year. Uh, We want the diversity of graduating classes, those folks who are entering into the profession. We want the racial ethnic diversity to reflect the country, to reflect the demographics of the nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want law students to be exposed to rigorous personal finance education, financial literacy, um, while they're in school. So when they go out into the real world and they're managing their loans and their mortgages and all of that, uh, they know how to do that as well as if they're managing the property of other people as as their lawyers. Um, and then lastly, we want data that's important to legal education, whether it's relevant to someone considering if law school is right for them or whether it's relevant to a researcher who just wants to do something or research a particular issue we want it to be centralized, usable, and accessible because we believe that better information drives better decision making. Okay, so I, I heard. So you, these are your four goals. One is to increase bar mm-hmm. passage rates. Two is to uh, focus on diversity, uh, specifically of graduates. Right. So the graduating class mm-hmm. reflects the society at large. Yep. Three is yep. oh shoot, I just started. I already forgot. Financial, financial literacy, literacy which finance, and you're focusing yep. on mm-hmm. post graduation. Well, well, not really. We're 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 targeting at law students um, with the idea that they will leave law school with these skills that will help them throughout their life. Got it. I mean, when you're saying that, I, I that's uh, something I think we would both, Nathan and I, would agree is necessary. But I almost feel like it has to take place earlier because. Some of the decisions that you make, right? <laughs> yeah. Once you're in law school, you've already committed to loans that are huge. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't have committed to them in the first place, right? Or, or yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, financial education in this country is horrible, right? And and it's pretty ironic given the role that money plays in practically everything we do in this country. You know, it's something that kindergartners, frankly, should be exposed to and and throughout your uh, uh, education, K twelve education. But what we're doing is we're making sure, at least trying to make sure that when they do leave law school and the stakes do become particularly high for them, um, that they'll have that insight that they that they should have gotten years and years earlier. Okay. They could add a financial literacy section to the LSAT, make people <laughs> understand what they're doing with their student loans before they actually are able to enroll in law school. Well, you know, we yeah. have our uh, student loan calculator on our website right now where people can come in and plug in numbers and, and it doesn't just do simple math of, you know, 50,000 plus 50 is a hundred. It actually tells them this is what the monthly payment will look like. And this is the grand amount you will actually pay back by the time you're done. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's accessible to anybody and everybody 
uh, whether you're going to law school or not. So um, so there are some resources, but our MAX program, which is our financial literacy program that uh, begins in orientation in the first year and continues on through uh, the end. So my preference would be that people go to law school for free. They get a, a full ride scholarship plus a stipend, right? But for those who remain unconvinced, I'm curious. I'm on your webpage right now, accesslex.org. So what, where can they find mm-hmm. this, this tool so they can at least get a sense of how much money they're really... The easiest way to get to it probably is just to put Access Lex Student Loan Calculator okay. in the search box. Yeah, it'll take it right to it. Okay. My worry about that is that you show people, hey, by the time you borrow and pay back these loans, you're going to have paid Mm $300,000. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's fake. That's a, it's a, it's not fake. It's a real number. (laughs) It's a number that is so big that they can't understand it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they also think that they're going to make more money as lawyers than they actually are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So that, that's why the monthly payment piece is important because I do think the monthly payment does make it a bit more real because they can compare it to their car note. They can compare it to their rent. Um, they can do those things. Um, but you know, a lot of, a lot of this really is the individual aspiring law student just doing their own due diligence about getting good information about a, what lawyers do. That's a big question that seems to be unclear on the parts of a lot of people and B how much do lawyers get paid? And and there's a whole lot of good information out there that'll show, sure, you have the big law firm jobs. Those are rare that pay very well. Most lawyers are going to make between forty and seventy thousand dollars fresh out of school. And and so, you know, that should put it into real perspective, um, again, for people who do their due diligence. But then you have the law schools out there talking about, oh, well, the average salary for lawyers is one hundred thousand dollars. Well, it is. Um, but you know, again, that just goes to how, when, when I was an admission officer, I can tell you the last thing I wanted to do was have a disgruntled student passing me in the hallway every day. And so what I would tend to do is I would actually err on the side of being just a little more careful in how I advise an individual student. So if someone came to me and said, you know, my goal in life, uh, is to work at a big law firm. I would ask them, how would you feel if you graduated from school and that didn't happen? Like, would you think law school was worth it? And if they said, oh, yeah, because I can go on and blah, 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 I'll say, okay, now we can talk. But if they say, no, it would be a complete waste, I would advise them against not necessarily going to law school generally, but going to the schools where I worked because we didn't place a lot of people in those settings. And so, you know, that really just goes to admission officers carry a lot of weight and and they have a responsibility to um to be judicious in the in the selling that they do because it is a salesperson's job as well. They have to be judicious about that. And I think in the aftermath of the of the downturn, particularly with the troubles that law schools got into with the employment data being fuzzy, um, if not fraudulent, and all of those things, I really do think most admission officers are being more judicious about how they give out information regarding what the payoff looks like. Let's talk about goal number one. Mm-hmm. 70% first time bar passage rate for yep. all ABA law schools. Mm-hmm. How many ABA law schools do we have to shut down to reach that goal? Well, I don't know how many we have to shut down. Uh, the ABA has a new bar standard. I guess it's about a year old now, uh, standard 316. And it 
focuses on eventual bar passage and eventual is basically two years uh, after the class graduates. I believe the number is 75% or 70% have to pass the bar exam. So that'll determine who or, or what schools need to be shut down because that's an accreditation standard. And if, if your accreditation is stripped, uh, you can't collect federal financial aid. So that'll make that determination. We don't make any determinations on uh, who should go and who should stay. What we do is provide resources for schools to serve their students better. I mean, I'm not asking you to you know, swing the axe on the law schools. <laughs> I guess I was asking more for your opinion. I'm in California yeah. right now. And uh, boy, in California, to get to a first time bar passage rate of 70%, uh, how many schools do we even have in California that have that? Maybe five? I don't know. Yeah. It, but you know, a, a lot of that depends on the cut score in the state. I mean, the, the cut score will influence bar pass rates more than, frankly, anything we could ever do as an organization. And cut scores are really just subjective numbers that someone said, this is the number we're going to put here. And and so, you know, there, there there's a whole systematic aspect to this. We're just one part of it. And we're trying to leverage the piece that we have some sway over. But there's a whole big world out here and, you know, when we talk about, you know, the idea of of a school's merit or right to remain open being dependent on something that fundamentally is is in some ways just made up, um, it kind of becomes a, a, a tricky conversation. And, and so I, I think what we've been advocating that every jurisdiction does and what schools do is look at their bar exam, assess the extent to which their bar exam actually does protect the public by telling us who's fit to practice law and who isn't. There are very few jurisdictions that have actually done that. California is actually in a process of doing it right now. And so until we get a sense of what this cut score means in the grand scheme of protecting the public from people who should not be uh, practicing law, then again, the conversation of who deserves to be open is just a, it's a tricky thing. It's, it's such a weird question. The public needs protection from essentially what lawyers who don't know some things about certain areas of the law. I mean, that's I don't know. I just feel like these issues are resolved best in the marketplace. You get a bunch of negative Yelp reviews and people say, OK, <laughs> you know, on, 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 on some level, I think you're right. Um, however, the, the role that lawyers play in the power that lawyers have uh, does, I think, require some level of inquiry into whether or not someone should be practicing law. Now, is that a traditional bar exam? You know, that's surely not the only way in my mind is one way, but it's surely not the only way. And uh, but there should be some inquiry beyond, you know, just pure go to the marketplace and, and see what happens, because those are individual lives that are impacted every time. And they don't often have much redress if a lawyer screws them over. But I mean, the law schools are graduating these people in the first place, right? So the bar is there then to protect the public from the people that the law schools have already for three years allegedly taught <laughs> how to practice law. Uh, that is the premise. And that so, is absolutely the premise. And, and again, the way the exams are structured and the where the cut scores are set, they are not really tied to this whole idea of, of fitness to practice law. And, and so, you know, there are fundamental questions uh, about the role of the bar exam. 
And frankly, that's the upside of all this COVID stuff is that it's requiring states to to get away from just the tradition of doing something because they've always always done it. And it's helped and them, hopefully right? It means- it's protectionism, right? It's like, oh, oh, we're here to protect the public. Really, we're here to protect the number of attorneys coming into the state, including attorneys, even if they may not be as intellectually savvy to pass the bar, when you put yeah. them in charge of a narrow piece of the law, they could become a badass and crush it, right? Like, yeah, I don't know all this stuff about whatever, but, <laughs> you know, I'm really good at X, Y, Z, whatever that is. Yeah, no, no, you, you're exactly right. And, and one of, you know, my really pet peeves with the bar exam is that they tend to be closed book. And and I'm like, when do lawyers ever have to know the law off the top of my off the top of their head? I used to work for the agency in D.C. that investigates allegations of ethical misconduct by members of the D.C. bar. And we had a saying that if a lawyer practices law the way they were required to take the bar exam, they're guaranteed to have a complaint before our office. And it just really gets to this idea that lawyers always have research that they can refer to and resources so why, you know, make the bar exam closed book? I mean, that's one of the host of, of complaints I have and issues I have with the way the traditional bar exam is set up. Aaron, funny story here. Uh, sorry, really, this just reminded me, uh, when I took the bar in Virginia, I we had a lunch break, right? The written portion. And I, I went and I ate lunch in my car because we were out somewhere in just the middle of Virginia. And I listened to an audio recording of some example questions and model answers. And I think I got like through three of them while I was eating lunch. And when I got back from the from the break, I think two, my last two questions or two of my last like essay questions were spot on to the example <laughs> that I just listened to. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like, this is wonderful. You were meant and to I, pass. Yeah. So Ben also cheated on the bar exam back in <laughs> 2000 or whatever. If now, I could, did you have to dress up for the Virginia bar? Oh, yeah, I heard you have to, one. like, wear yeah, a suit and tie or something. Yeah, we had a suit and tie inside of a large, um, wow. uh, you know, gym area <laughs> with sneakers. It was awkward. <laughs> Hilarious. I want to bring it back to the students because I think that that's what all three of us really care about. Um, We need to figure out a way to protect students. Uh, Protect the public? Eh, Who cares about the public? Let's protect the students because the students, I mean, our students, LSAT students, law school applicants generally tend to be early 20s. Mm-hmm. pretty naive, pretty broke, um, yep. especially when we start talking about people of color. They probably haven't had lawyers in their family. They don't really Video. know what they're yep. getting themselves into. And so mm-hmm. I think our primary concern here is to protect the students from, you know, 30 years ago when law school cost $5,000 a year, eh, maybe it's you're not going to ruin your financial future. Today, when law school costs $50,000 a year, you are going to ruin your financial future if you don't end up with a successful legal mm-hmm. career after law school. So, you know, it's it's really the law schools that are taking advantage of the student loan system that we have. There's all these perverse incentives that are set up. So the law schools, presumably, I mean, if you had held them to some standard of 
bar passage, then I guess you could say, well, as long as you're admitting students and pre- who can pass and preparing right. them in such a way that they can pass, then okay, you know, you're putting them in a position to have a successful career. But there seems to also be some abdication of responsibility with the way that system is set up where the law schools now, they can say, oh, you didn't pass the bar. Well, I mean, the bar is there to protect the public. And, you know, if you're so uh, we did what we can do. And I, I don't know, you know, the kid, meanwhile, signed on the dotted line and now they owe a quarter of a million dollars and can't pass the bar. I mean, who's, yeah. it just seems like an intractable problem. What, what do we do practically? What do we do? Yeah, well, you know, of course they have the ABA accreditation standards that dictate your bar pass has to be a certain level. So that's one way of trying to hold schools responsible for their students. Wait, and I can tell level? you, you know, oh, wait, I, like I said, I believe it's 75% uh, in two years. So within two years of the class graduating, at least 75% of the class has to have passed the bar exam. And if you fail that, you get put on probation? Right. You get put on probation and then you get another year or another cycle, I should say, to for your next class to basically uh, meet the standard. And then after that, you potentially could lose your accreditation. So it's a brand new rule. So it hasn't run its course in terms of maturing enough for someone to be brought up. So we don't know if it has any bite. Yeah. We don't know yet. Yeah. Because again, no one has been brought up yet, but uh, in another two or three years, we'll begin to see how much bite it actually has, but that, but that's the premise behind it. And so this is what I think can be done by law school specifically. Reduce the risk of going because my idea of access is access is messy. You're going to have some that come in and they're slam dunks and you're like, wow, I knew that person had it in them. You're going to have other folks who come in and they flame out quickly. And so you reduce the risk by a stop awarding full scholarships or half scholarships or third scholarships, whatever, whatever they are to people with no financial need. (laughs) <laughs> you know, people who don't need the loan or don't need the scholarship um, and provide it on a need base need basis. Because what happens is if you're a student, you're coming in, you have no financial resources behind you, with the exception of the student loan that you can get. And, and I'm, a, I'm a complete advocate of robust access based student loan system. So unless, you know, you're a student, that's all you have and you're borrowing every dime your risk obviously is much higher than if you came in, got a full ride because you have no money. And then all you borrowed was maybe the living expenses and things of that nature. So in my mind, that's something that's pretty straightforward. I won't call it easy, but it's something that's pretty straightforward that law schools can do because they don't have crystal balls. They don't know exactly how people are going to do once they get in the building, but you can absolutely impact the level of risk that this student takes by reducing the amount that this student has to borrow to attend. What incentive would schools have to do that, to switch from a merit-based to a need-based system simply? I mean, because right now they're using the merit-based system to basically buy their ranking. Absolutely. There are no incentives right now, at least no tangible ones. There are a whole bunch of them of, you know, appeal to your conscience, appeal to, you know, your sense of being a good citizen, appeal to this idea that these are real people that you're inducing to come to your school and you want them to have a good outcome. But the the, the system of prestige and rankings and exclusion, frankly, that legal education is built upon 
it doesn't incentivize any type of altruism when it comes to awarding scholarships. A lot of times the, the, the view is that that person should be happy that they got in. Yeah, that's the that's how the whole system is built. They make people feel like it's such an amazing privilege to be able to go to this school <laughs> and pay us $50,000. Meanwhile, other people are going for free that you're paying for their education and in many cases their rent. Yep. Yep. I mean, you know, I I will say there are schools that intentionally keep their costs low um and their access schools like North Texas I think their tuition is around fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a year. Uh, you have most of the HBCU law schools have very low tuition because they're public mainly, but then also they know who their students are and they want to reduce that risk of of the investment. Uh, but then on the flip side, you have other access-based schools, and I won't name any names per se, but but they do have a high tuition model where you know they say, hey, we'll take all comers, and essentially it's up to you whether you make it. And 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 so those are the ones I have real issues with uh, the other ones. If, if your tuition is reasonable and you're just taking a chance on someone who may actually become a great student and may be a great lawyer, then that's that's I have no problem with that. I actually encourage that. All right. So what do you tell uh, potential applicants like you meet someone? They say, hey, I want to go to law school. Yeah. You say, OK, but watch out for anything. Yeah. What do you, what's yeah, your... Yeah, um, so the, the, the first thing I tend to do is basically point them to resources where they can learn more. Because what I find, at least with the folks who reach out to me or who I come across, uh, they really have no real information about legal education. They know they want to be a lawyer. They've admired lawyers for long periods of time, but they don't have much information about how they go from layperson to lawyer. And so I point them to resources, uh, particularly some of ours, uh, Access Lex. Uh, that they can use to learn more information. But then what I do on a bottom line level is I tell them not all lawyers go to court. Most of them don't. Not all lawyers work in big law firms. Most of them don't. And most lawyers make between $40,000 and $70,000 fresh out of school. And so if that's okay with you, um, and for many it is, for many it's not really about money, then I encourage them to, to go forth. Then also what I do is I apprise them of the student loan options, the the income-based repayment and also public service loan forgiveness, because that can really impact uh, what they end up paying on the back end, irrespective of what they come out owing. And so I, I try to give them a full range of what the real picture looks like, but then also give them some options to consider if they go in, pay a whole lot of money, and it doesn't quite pan out the way that they had hoped. I just feel so stuck. I, I like I I I don't feel like progress is being made on this issue. If anything, I feel like it's getting worse. Ben and I have been yelling on this podcast for seven years now, or whatever it is. About I mean, our the tagline on the show is literally "Don't pay for law school." The reason why the tagline on tagline on the show is "Don't pay for law school" is because you don't have to. You can always just go to a slightly lower ranked school and mm -hmm. take one of these tuition scholarships. And when you do, you're going for free and you're competing against less qualified colleagues in your class. And those people are paying full price and you're not. And until we fix that broken system, I, I don't think there's any possible way. I mean, 
I suppose, do law schools, I don't think they currently do, do they have to publish data or should they have to publish data about the indebtedness of various different segments of their graduating class? Because if it became, you know, if they had to show people, right. Hey, yep. our blacks and Latinxes in our class graduate with five times as much debt as the white kids do, then yep. you know maybe that would be like, if you put the sunlight on that and it would become obvious how unconscionable it is. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, I mean, they're, Ben they're, and I make it worse because we just <laughs> try to convince all of our students and all of our <laughs> listeners. We feel like it's our responsibility to do so. Like, stop. Don't pay. Like, why would you pay tuition? You don't have to pay tuition. That's the system. You don't have to. Every All the law schools are charging everyone a different price. And yep. that price is zero in many, many cases or mm-hmm. close to zero in many cases. Also, and I'm sorry for yelling at you, Aaron. You're, you're certainly not hey. responsible for the problem. <laughs> I get it. That's what I do on this show is yell. But you, what are they possibly doing with $50,000 a year worth of tuition? Where does that money go? Because it mm-hmm. is not going to actual benefits for the students. I mean, what do well, they do you know, with that I, money? I, I, I would say post-enrollment downturn, more of it is going to students. The the bulk of it is going to students because now with enrollments being so low, central universities are now having to subsidize the law school budgets. I'll give you an example. When I when I um, the year before I 2010, the year before I joined the faculty at St. Louis, there were about 300 first year students who came in that year. Uh, by 2013, the enrollment was about 130. So. That's a whole different budget picture. When when there were 300 students in, in the class, the law school was sending money out to other departments or to Central University, and it was being distributed to other departments that were not revenue generating. When that thing flipped and there were only 130 students, the flow became reversed. The Central University started subsidizing the law school. And then what also has happened over the last maybe five, uh, 10, definitely five years is student support, particularly in the areas of academic support and bar prep, those have been fortified and and beefed up at a lot of law schools. And and of course, that costs a whole lot of money to hire people and and have programming and offer, um, you know, this free thing and that free thing or free in terms of, you know, it's not costing a student um, a la carte. But the overall point is right now, I do think most of the tuition is going to to support students. That hasn't always been the case. And it's a direct reflection of just the enrollment dip uh, that we saw that began in 2011, which, and we're still kind of at the bottom of that. I guess I want to push back a little bit on that. I mean, when Mm -hmm. you say it's going to support students, you mean pay salaries for people who are there. yeah, Yeah, which is certainly part of it. I'm not saying law professors shouldn't get paid. Yeah. But administrators and law professors, they got a pretty good gig. Law professors definitely do. The best job I've ever had. Um, um, and, I, you know, the, the part of what made that the best job was I was able to directly impact real students practically every day. Um, and that's a part of it that, that a lot of people don't talk about. You really are guiding people. Uh, in, a, in a very impactful part of their life. But it's a, yeah, it's a great job. And and so, yeah, it's a sweet gig. Administrators, I wouldn't necessarily say that that their gigs are great. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Um, but yeah, it's, I always consider it a privilege, whether I was 
on the administrator side or the faculty side or even as a student, I always consider it a privilege to be able to work in a law school setting. And and yeah, I never had I never didn't feel thankful for the students who were coming in paying money for me to get a salary. So but but again, these people serve students, so you have to pay people to provide the academic support. You have to pay people to teach the courses. Salaries aren't per se bad. Um, and, and one of the, the downsides, I mean, it was necessary, but one of the downsides of the downturn was you had a whole lot of folks who got laid off, uh, particularly administrators. You had a whole lot of faculty who got phased out um, because the budget just couldn't support them. So, you know, again, post downturn, I think it, it's a much more efficient operation in a much less gratuitous operation than it was uh, previous to that. I I have this image in my head, and I don't know which guest I got this from. Um, it may be as long ago as Zachary uh, Kalo, but um, which was like episode eight for us. But um, I remember someone talking about this idea of there's two models for law school, right? One was more sort of the, the like trade school and one is sort of like the Harvard mm -hmm. model of like uh, having expensive faculty and yep. taking a yep. much more theoretical approach. And uh, since all these lower tier schools decided to follow the higher tier model, it required <laughs> hiring professors who graduated from, you know, the top, top programs in the world and compensating them with higher salaries. And so you have a lot of these lower tier law schools that really have no need for this expensive professor base, maybe, right? But they have it anyways, because that's the model they decided to follow. I wonder how much of that is still affecting, you know, how expensive it is for students to go to these schools, because the schools feel like, oh, well, I have to hire these professors, and they have to be from the top five schools, which means we have to pay them a lot. Well, and we just covered the, I guess it's still a fact that U.S. News, one of the metrics they use for ranking is how much money you spend. <laughs> so the more money they spend, the better for their ranking. So the more money they charge, the more money they spend, then the better for their ranking. And there's so many ways to game that calculation. But I, I was kind of uh, laughing earlier because the idea that, you know, a lot of these schools chose it isn't really how it went. They were kind of forced to choose it by the accreditation system. You know, the accreditation system drives a lot of this Harvard model, mm -hmm. this Langdellian model, as it's mm -hmm. often called, of legal education. And you do have a whole lot of schools that are trying to do things differently. In, in other words, they don't um, um, require faculty to engage in a whole bunch of, of theoretical research, you know, and, and do a lot of publishing. <laughs> They're much more focused on... We just don't need on, it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, we, we, we still need it. And there there will be enough law faculty writing articles you know, in like yeah. forever. Well, like, <laughs> yeah, Harvard, you guys can take care of the th theory and like figure it out. The rest of us could just chill. You know, but but then uh, but those schools are very teacher centered, um, mm -hmm. but they still are operating within a larger framework of accreditation requirements and incentives. And then also, again, these this idea of prestige and elitism. Um, that incentivizes the Harvard, Yale, Stanford professor background um, with, you know, oh, professor has published X number of articles in, in X number of years. That's still the overarching model. And a lot of schools would love to be freed from it 
Um, but again, the accreditation system doesn't necessarily allow for you to completely divest your institution of, of the model. And it's what makes the U.S. News and World Report ranking system capable of including all law schools in it, right? Because law schools are so homogeneous and they have to be homogeneous because of the, basically the requirements, right? The ABA requirements. And, and the ones that depart in any substantive way get deemed by U.S. News. Those are the so-called unranked schools. Those are the, the, the renegade schools in a lot of ways. Um, and, and they get completely punished for for not buying completely into the system. And U.S. News, uh, uh, probably a year ago, and I'm not sure the status of it right now, but they were talking about adding a professor publication uh, um uh, you know, standard <laughs> or, or or indicator to their calculation, oh and so gosh. now it's wow. like an idea of how many times your your professor's articles have been cited and things of that nature. And so you really again dig in deeply on this this Harvard model of legal education when you have a whole lot of other schools that are like, no, we're concerned with educating our students. Research isn't that important to us in that way. How do we get people off of the U? It seems like U.S. News is the, is responsible for <laughs> half of this whole problem. How do we get people off of those rankings? Also, I'm curious, do we know who owns U.S. News? I think it's privately owned, actually. Um, I don't I don't think it's, it's publicly traded company. I think it's privately owned. And uh, so you asked me a good question. And, and I'm the only person in the world, possibly, that you would hear actually say U.S. News is a scapegoat. And the reason why I say that is because U.S. News is essentially a uh, it's a means for legal educators to satisfy their already elitist notions of status. And I'm better than this school and that school. I'm better than that professor, that professor. But it gives them kind of a scapegoat to say, but no, I don't want to do that or I don't consider myself better or my school better. Well, to me, the proof is in the pudding. You aren't mandated to complete the U.S. News questionnaire. <laughs> so you choose to do it year after year for a reason. And don't get me wrong. I understand it's very difficult for one school to just say I'm not going to participate because they'll have to deal with angry central administration. They'll have to deal with angry alumni. They'll have to deal with angry students who will say, why did the ranking go down when I chose the school because of the ranking? But. If 50 law schools said we're no longer going to participate, that would severely impact, particularly if they were top 100 law schools, that would severely impact U.S. News's influence. But I yeah, really we need think, Harvard. We need Harvard, Stanford, Yale to do it. If they, well, if they know, did they it could, at the they top, could, they can absolutely do it. And, and it wouldn't impact them at all because they're Harvard, Yale and Stanford. Right. But they um, might impact people's concern for the rankings. If all of a sudden Harvard, Yale, Stanford were unranked, then we would see how absurd the whole ranking system is. But other Absolutely. schools aren't going to want to do it because all of a sudden they go from, you know, you're UCLA and you're just right outside mm -hmm. the top 14 and now all of a sudden you're unranked. Well, of course they're not going to want to do that because they attract but how about, students. How about school number 79? Like, like, <laughs> like it's like, it, it seems to me that there there are some schools that U.S. News is not work or is not working for at all. I don't know. And, and I, so you know, Harvard and Yale, I can almost see. Okay, if they did it, it would be great, but it would require you know just pure charity from them to not participate. 
there are other schools where it would be a tangible benefit if they banded together and just refused to do it. I disagree. Like I said, Aaron. I think U.S. News is an outlet and it's a scapegoat for their their own notions of elitism and, and hierarchy. The thing is, I got the question in class last night. I have students and I get this question constantly. People asking me, hey, you know, I'm considering going to this uh, unranked school. What do you think? And they think that 79 is much better than unranked. And I'm like, listen, right. anything outside the top 50, maybe anything outside the top 25, they're all yeah. fine. They're all regional law schools that are fine. There's no difference. Yep. There should yep. be, I mean, if there's going to be any ranking at all, it should be like one through 10 and then everything else. And instead it's it, people like, cause students, how do we educate students? How do we educate listeners? I'm sorry, guys, 79 and unranked right. are the exact same thing. Yeah. And, and the, the regional school point uh, is a good one. So when I was at Arkansas Little Rock, I believe I think U.S. News was still ranking up to 150 at that time. And we were probably around 115 <laughs> or something along those lines. And I could tell you a graduate in, in Arkansas, a graduate coming out of Little Rock or Fayetteville, would have a better chance of getting any law firm job in the state than someone coming from Harvard or Yale or anything along those lines. And that's because the alumni of those two schools were the people doing the hiring. And so the idea of, okay, you have national law schools to where the name is just going to take you wherever you want to go. And there's probably, like you said, 25 of them, I would say, maybe 30. After that, you have regional schools. Some regions are larger than others. But fundamentally, that school has its most name cachet and its most influence and its strongest alumni base within a certain geographic uh, area of the school itself. And that is very important because if you wanted to work at a law firm in Arkansas and you chose to go to um, Columbia, that might not have been the best choice for you for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. I, and, and it's even worse. I mean, Possibly the, the Harvard, Stanford, Yale lawyer might actually be able to walk into a law firm in Fayetteville and say, hey, I, I just moved here. You know, like, I, I, here's my diploma from actual Yale. Like, maybe, maybe it actually has a bit of cachet. But like, uh, you know, someone who thinks they're at an allegedly national law school, like my alma mater, Hastings in San Francisco, you're not impressing anybody with a hate. Oh, well, boy, we're ranked 60th in the country. You know, that's much better than Little Rock or whatever. I mean, no way that's going to carry any weight in Arkansas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's an interesting notion. Um, but I think the real danger of U.S. news is the extent to which it influences stu aspiring lawyers yeah. and, and prospective students. Um, outside of, of, again, it being a scapegoat, I think, for, for legal educators, I think it's very dangerous the way it influences the people who are looking to it to tell them where to go to school. I've seen people turn down, you know, $100,000 worth of tuition assistance to go to a law school that was ranked 40th instead of a law school that was ranked 60th. Yep. And they could have gone to the school that was ranked 60th for free. And they just, no, oh, no, no, because, mm, no. You know, and they're just immediately buying into the elitism exactly. and just the, we got to have somebody to look down on. If I go to the school that's exactly. ranked 60th, I, you know, I won't be able to look down on anybody. So I have to go to this right. other school and sign my life away. Yep. 
Yep. You know, uh, an episode or two ago, we talked to Kyle McEntee, the ex- executive yep. director at Law School Transparency, and he floated the idea of buying, <laughs> I guess his organization has floated the idea of buying the U.S. News and World Report rankings for <laughs> whatever millions of dollars it would right. cost. And and his when we talked about it then, we talked about like, okay, well, what would happen if you just disbanded, you bought it, and then you just, you know, blew it up? And it's like, well, other people would come in its place, right? And he's like, well, yeah, but that would take time and there wouldn't be any like obvious winner necessarily at first. But my thought is actually you buy it and then you you slowly tweak it over time. Like, so you, you buy it and, and you keep everything the same. So everybody just still buys into it. It still keeps its power. And then you start changing those numbers because even small tweaks, which are all behind the scenes and, you know, no users know about them, but administrators know them so intimately and then all of a sudden they're like oh wait that doesn't matter anymore you know cost or, or the amount of money spent per student doesn't matter what <laughs> the amount matter? of books oh. in my library no longer right. matters oh yeah right and 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 then slowly like take control of that like ship and steer yeah. it in a different direction uh I, I, I think your your point is a good one about uh not disbanding it because in the absence of information, something else will definitely step into that vacuum. And so it would have to be something still there to take up that space and to suck all the oxygen out of the room for some other more unscrupulous list. And so, yeah, you, you, you change the uh, algorithm, you change the way that the uh, rankings are computed. From a researcher standpoint, you actually make it valid and reliable, which it has no validity, no statistically, no statistical reliability right now. And then hopefully you can get people to start thinking about what makes one law school better than the other in different ways. The problem is any kind of one size fits all list of law schools, you know, there are 200 or so uh, in the country will always be blunt. It will always be no more than just a superficial starting point. Um, And so part of it, too, is to educate people how to contextualize these lists. No, I mean, no list will be good for everybody. And just how to contextualize and say, look, you can go here to get general information about how schools are like their reputations and what types of programming they have, but then use other resources to, to resources to see the extent to which school A is a better fit for you than school B. The problem I I, I don't disagree with you, but the problem I have with like educating people is that mm-hmm. it's a constant battle and even Absolutely. when you educate someone all the way through the roof right like they totally get it and they're sitting there and they're nodding their heads and they say yeah i know it's just a number but it's still this number that like pulls at you even if you are on board you recognize that everyone else is not on board and so you like it feels to me i i wonder i'm really curious what it would cost to buy that organization and then just steer the ship and even if it's a shitty thing because it's still just this number and it's still just Mm -hmm. this hierarchy what if you started to realize though that those rankings were based more on something a little more substantive you know um employment outcomes w- became much more central. And and so then the schools were more free to say, hey, this is how we think we're going to accomplish employment outcomes. And we're like, okay, great. I don't care how you right. do it. As long as they're legit, they're not just JD advantage. They're also, but whatever, right? You just move yeah. that ship. It's still going to have its flaws, but maybe less less arbitrary, but who knows? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, the main criticism I have of U.S. News is, 
much of the ranking, a plurality of the ranking is dependent on people's perceptions of your school without any real insight into the good things or bad things that your school is doing. And, and the sample that they get is, 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 is horrible. I mean, if they actually pitched it as real research, um, it, it would almost be criminal <laughs> for them to call it that. And so if you remove or at least lessen uh, the influence of just these random subjective perceptions of reputation, the list possibly could be salvageable. But, I, you know, I think that's the main criticism of it, at least the one I have. It's, it's useless in a lot of ways. Can we move people over to, I mean, are you familiar um, with the above the law rankings, Aaron, mm-hmm. or the resources on law school transparency? I mean, can yep. we just start pointing people at least in that direction instead? Maybe, Ben, Ben, maybe you and I need to take an oath to never talk about U.S. news, like just to, to when people say, well, that's a top 14, we should go, huh? A what? <laughs> what does that mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean top 14? By the way, there's 15 <laughs> schools in the top 14 <laughs> because they're tied. It's like, come on now. What, what are we even doing? Why do we do that? I would, it wouldn't do any good if we did, though. But I, I think the not talking about it actually makes a lot of sense because, you know, U.S. news is a product, but it also comes with the whole legend behind it. And, and, and it literally leaves no room for any other ranking system to take hold. And, and it's amazing. If you look at business school rankings, they have about three or four rankings that are, you know, more or less kind of considered uh, to be equal in terms of influence and things of that nature. Legal education, many have tried. They're good rankings, well, good as they go, ranking system out there. Like I think the above the law one is, is solid. Um, the the uh, law.com, the AM Law 100 ranking is pretty solid if you know if you want to go into a, a law firm setting. Beyond that, but U.S. News is like, no, you get no space. <laughs> the schools reinforce it, though, too, because, you know, again, even not to pick on my alma mater, UC mm-hmm. Hastings, which I always pick on, but they – even they, you know, who their ranking has fallen over the last couple decades. And, but even they still point back to like, well, you know, we're ranked 11th on the U S news best medical, right. Medical science law. <laughs> like, okay. They're, they're still pointing everybody. Everybody wants to hold up their little, you know, sign about, and it's always U S news. As I said, U.S. News is a scapegoat for for our own instincts. You know, we 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 demonize it because we don't want to admit ourselves that we are really into what it's doing. Um, we've kept you already for almost an hour, Aaron. Um, is there anything that we are missing that we haven't you know we haven't talked about that we need to talk about? Well, I mean, just generally, I want prospective law students, aspiring lawyers. Uh, to know that Access Lex is a resource for them. We have a whole host of pre-law resources, um, including one-on-one financial counseling uh, with with certified and accredited financial counselors. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about the, the student loan piece. This is where they can get that information on the front end and throughout their law school um, experience. And so, you know, just go to our website, see what we have, contact us if you have any questions. Um you know, we're really here to stand in the void of other information to help prospective law students and then actual law students to make better decisions and have better experiences. How can uh, people reach you, Aaron? 
my email is a taylor at accesslex.org. But, you know, if you just go on the website and email whoever you see on there first, they can point you to me. <laughs> awesome. Ben, any final questions no, for Aaron? This has been great. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I appreciate really. you taking Thank your time. You. Thank you all for having me. Thanks so much, Aaron. Okay. Um, that was our interview with Aaron Taylor of Access Lex. Ben, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up the show? Oh, actually, there's one thing. Yeah. Um, we are working on a scholarship calculator. And it's oh. getting closer and closer to becoming public. So I'm just teasing that out there. I just met with Jackson yesterday. We went through some more details. Bottom line, you can put in your LSAT score and your GPA, and we're going to tell you what scholarship amount you should expect or probably expect from whatever school you want to apply to. So we can continue to make the system even worse, uh, you know, <laughs> as we were talking about in the interview <laughs> with Aaron. Um, it, it, but I mean, hey, all we Does it really... make it worse, though? I actually have to right. question you on that because, like, we're telling people what they can do today as opposed right. to what the system can do in five years. Right. Right. And I think it will force change on the system in some ways. Yeah, right. If everyone started insisting on a scholarship, then they would have to change their whole game and they would have to just lower tuitions for everybody and say, sorry, we're not giving these scholarships anymore. This isn't working. Yeah. I mean, but for, but for now what's been happening for the last 10 years, it seems like the scholarships have been just going more and more and more crazy and they've been then charging uh, people more and more and more, the people who are paying full price ultimately. And I, I regret, I wanted to bring this up with Aaron, but ultimately I really wish that they would put a cap on how much people could borrow for, for law school tuition. I mean, they're just, mm-hmm. they, that's the problem, right? It's unlimited. There's, uh, there's, there's no limit to the amount that law schools can charge. They literally could charge $200,000 a year if they wanted to. Hmm. And they are headed in that direction. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's not done anything except for keep going up for the entire time we've been in this business. It increases dramatically faster than inflation. And I think that maybe that's a, you know, that's a thing that the ABA could come in and do and say, hey, we're going to, or not the ABA, I guess that would be the federal government coming in and saying there's going to be a cap on, even if it was just a freeze on borrowing, you know, where there was at least like an upper limit that you could borrow. Yeah. Then that would all, that would immediately be the upper limit that schools would charge. It's clear. And we've had multiple guests on the show who have said, Law schools would go out of business if they weren't able to access the federal loans. Well, what about just ending the federal loan program and requiring people to take loans from private lenders who would require much more assurances that the person's going to go to law school, be successful, and then turn around and pay, be able to pay them? Yeah, probably. Right, right with now, that, of it's course. like this blank check. You'd have to have a, another solution for diversity, obviously, right? Like the, the whole point of having this big student loan system that everybody can access guaranteed by the federal government is to make sure that poor people can go to law school. Banks generally don't loan money to poor people. Banks loan money to rich people. And so if you all of a sudden didn't have these loan programs available, then it would be poorer people. And we know what those poorer people tend to look like. They would not have access to law school anymore. It would dramatically change what law schools do, of course. Um, 
many of those poorer people are currently getting ripped off by the system anyway, right? Because they're signing for this federal guaranteed loan that then they end up just giving the money to law schools and not practicing law anyway. So I'm not saying that, I mean, your suggestion does, in many cases, it would be better that they didn't go to law school, Mm -hmm. right? But it would also decrease access in for me, an intolerable way. Well, maybe and maybe not, right? Because they could base it on your income, but they could also just base it on what school you got into and whether you're likely to succeed there. And that would be really your your chances yeah. of paying back. <laughs> I mean, and then we would have to face the harsh reality that it's worth it at like three law schools. Yep. <laughs> right? I mean, or the law schools would have to get somewhat reasonable and start charging $10,000 a year tuition instead of $50,000 They would probably lower their rates. Because they would say, oh, we're not getting, people aren't poning up money. Lenders aren't providing money because they're just saying, why would I lend out that much money? I don't expect that return. I don't know. It's a reconciliation that sucks, but it's not happening. If you have thoughts about this issue, we would love to hear them. You can email help at thinkinglset.com. I'm sure that this is something that we will continue to follow up about on future episodes. Um, I'd love to have Aaron actually back on the show again sometime. So um, if you have follow-up questions, yeah, please email uh, help at thinkinglset.com. You can get on our agenda. You can join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. I'm sure that there will be a conversation happening over there as well. We are at Thinking LSAT on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm at N Fox on Twitter. Ben is at Innovator Ben on Instagram. Our joint LSAT class, it's the best possible way to study for the LSAT. It's LSATdemon.com, and it is everything you need for LSAT prep. The show uh, website is thinkinglsat.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter there. That was episode 257 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.